0: Hello, and thanks for joining the final session of the Second World Sepsis Congress. Today's session presents the most important sepsis research in 2017 and 2018. As always, please use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker and head over to YouTube should you wish to see the slides of the speakers. Now, let me hand it over to Philip Dellinger from the U.S. to get us underway. Phil? Welcome
1: uh, to the second uh, annual World Sepsis Congress, uh, session 17, the most important sepsis research in 2017 and 2018. Uh, I'm Phil Dellinger uh, from Camden, uh, United States, and I'll be chairing uh, the first session. Our first speaker uh, will be Catherine Maitland from Kenya. Uh, I need to recognize um, our sponsor of this session, uh, Becton Dickinson, our BD, Uh, as we know them. We appreciate very much uh, their sponsorship of this session. And we'll begin uh, with uh, Catherine Maitland from Kenya. Uh, who's going to discuss transfusion and treatment of severe anemia in African children, Catherine?
2: Hello, this is Catherine Maitland from Khalifi in Kenya, presenting to you one of the uh, clinical trials that she has just, uh, our team have just completed. Severe anemia is a common cause of um, admission in Africa. It's. Um, largely due to infectious diseases or sickle cell. Um, nevertheless, um, and our, um, children admitted with severe anemia have a very poor outcome they, um, um, with mortality rates of between 6 and 8% in hospital but also downstream mortality in the six months following admission and very high readmission rates. The only comprehensive case control study looking at um, cases admitted in in Malawi with severe anemia found that the key correlates with the downstream mortality and readmission rates were bacterial infection and also nutritional. Interestingly they found compared to cases um, and contra- community controls it was vitamin B deficiency, vitamin A deficiency, but not they were more, more likely to have iron deficiency than community controls. In Africa, the pattern of usage of uh, uh, blood that is donated to the transfusion service, so this results in stockouts um, during the seasons of uh, peak uh, demand, um, and as a result, The WHO, um, because uh, over 50% of the uh, transfusions in Africa are used by children, they have developed what they call a restrictive transfusion recommendations. These are based on expert opinion um, and low quality of evidence. So they only recommend a transfusion for children with a haemoglobin of below 4 grams per deciliter without symptoms. That's profound anemia or children who are severely anaemic with a haemoglobin between four and six who have um, clinical complications. Um, at discharge, they recommend um, an iron and folate um, for the three months following and, and, and to deworm the ch- uh, to deworm children. And once again, this is expert opinion based on low quality of evidence. Well, we know that doctors don't follow these guidelines, um, even in the context of a clinical trial, this was the um, sub-analysis of the FEAST trial, we were just looking at transfusion practices in there. We found that a lot of children who have moderate to mild um, anemia who should not have received um, a transfusion, many of those children actually did receive a transfusion, demonstrating that the failure to follow these um, guidelines. But for those who who were eligible to receive a transfusion, we found that not not that they require just one transfusion, they still remain very severely anemic after this, and up to thirty percent required two or three uh, transfusions. So this was the basis around which we d- um, designed um, and have run a, a clinical trial called TrACT: Transfusion and Treatment uh, of Severe Anemia uh, in African Children. Um, it was um, conducted in four centres in um, B- um, B- um, Malawi and Uganda. Used a factor, efficient factorial design, where we uh, had four simultaneous randomizations and um, this has involved nearly four thousand children aged uh, very pragmatic trial um, aged between two months and um, th- uh, t- uh, twelve years presenting to hospital with severe anaemia, and um, that's any child with a haemoglobin below six grams per deciliter. We had two immediate randomisations for transfusion strategies, um, and, uh, and also then a long-term management looking at nutrition and infection prophylaxis. So, just going back to those transfusion questions, the first question uh, that we um, wanted to address, particularly for the group that are recommended not to receive transfusion, which cho- which children should receive transfusions, we know that our outcomes are poor and uh, that certainly that the guidelines are based on protecting scarce resources. So we need to know for Africa, for children who have a haemoglobin between 4 and 6, would giving all of these children a blood transfusion improve mortality to day 28, which is our primary end, encu- and our secondary end so are mortality to day 180 and also um, readmission to day 180. The second transfusion question really addresses the fact that many remain severely anemic following a transfusion and up, up to 30% of these children will end up receiving two or more transfusions, in other words increasing the use on the, the actual resource available. So our Our question related to the blood volume was to say, will giving a larger initial volume improve outcome? And the the mortality um, to day 28 is the primary endpoint, and secondary endpoints are day 180 mortality and readmission to day 180. So the the trial has two strata because we have children who have profound anemia and and severe and complicated anemia, who would not ordinarily all receive a transfusion. The question that we're asking in that, those particular groups um, are uh, whether a higher volume is better than a lower volume. Most children receive whole blood. This is not leukocyte reduced. That is the standard of care. Um, and if, uh, if they don't receive 30 or 20 mls per kilo, if there are red cell um, concentrates there, we would be giving the equivalent volume for that. So for the children who have uncomplicated anemia, the largest group, 50%, will um, will not receive a transfusion. In other words, the control is the standard of care. And the uh, what we're asking that in, in that group is whether actually receiving um, a transfusion is better for outcome. And we're also comparing the higher and lower volume. So there was co- obviously one could say that there may be a bit of a concern about uh, uh, giving a higher volume to children and knowing what we know um, in the feast uh, from the FEAST trial. So we actually did test this um, in a phase two um, safety study um, and all children received um, 30 mils of whole blood versus 20 mils of whole blood. There was no packed cells used in this trial. What we were able to show in the um, in this paper which has been uh, published at um, um, BMC Medicine, that that we were very reassured by the safety endpoints. We we found no evidence of volume overnode, no no pulmonary and there was no use of diuretics in the trial despite all of these children receiving whole blood. What we did see is a superior hematological correction of the the children in the the higher transfusion arm, the TX30 arm. So this provided, we think, a very good um, uh, uh, safety of uh, the uh, the actual intervention that we were going to test in a large phase 3. The second question we wanted to know is because uh, other uh, um, vitamin and mineral deficiencies was found in the, uh, the Savannah study, we wanted to know whether giving multi-minerals and multi-vitamin mix was better than iron and folate alone, with the mortality to day um, um, 90 as the primary endpoint and secondary endpoints of mortality and readmission to day 180. The final uh, randomisation was uh, looking at whether we could pr- prevent um, bacterial infection using um, co um, as is used in the HIV programme. So we were asking whether, and um, adding this uh, compared to obviously um, children not receiving this, whether this would improve um, mortality to day 90, there's a primary endpoint, and uh, mortality to day 180 or readmission to day 180 is the secondary endpoints. So the trial started in September 2014. We complete, completed enrolment um, last year in May, and as this was had a six-month follow-up, um, the last patient was enrolled um, followed up today um, uh, uh, at, in six months. And, and December last year, there's been a huge amount of uh, obviously data cleaning, and the results, um, the preliminary results, only became available. To, to the trial group in um, 1st of June. so there's still quite a lot of more work to be done and we hope to be pre- um, presenting the or uh, submitting the manuscript on the transfusion strategies um, later in this year. Here is us all meeting in Ke- um, Kenya um, to actually hear the results of the trial and you can see that the people are, there seems to be uh, almost a, um, yes, a, most people agree on a, a particular strategy and um, well, you don't know which one that's going to be, but there seems to be some consensus around that. Whether they were right, you'll have to find out when we uh, publish the results. But what I can tell you from um, on the results of the trial, so, so, so or the, um, the outcomes from the trial, that the, the trial was done conducted to extremely high standard. It was a very, very tough trial to run because we had to get all the services working together. But out of the nearly 4,000 patients enrolled, we only had, in terms of recruitment, and this is the, uh, only three minor um, violations, in terms of randomization the trial teams all followed the arms that the child, children were enrolled into. And in terms of adherence to the higher versus lower strategy and also the control strategy, they were and um, able to uh, there was almost a, a, a very there was extremely good adherence to this and um, uh, controls could receive a transfusion if severity features developed or a child developed profound anemia which happened in 49% in terms of vol- volume given the adherence was um, absolutely superb at 98 percent The retention, which is a really key thing, 97% to day um, um, day, um, 28, which is the primary endpoint for the transfusion uh, strategies, and to um, day 180, um, 95%. we will. The result will be a sound result as, as a base on the on the trial conduct. I would like to acknowledge all the parents and children, and also the and the clinical teams who have worked so hard to make this trial um, uh, um, a reality. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Catherine. Um, and Catherine is not with us. Uh, she's asleep in Kenya, as she should be. Um, you know, we've got. Um, over 15,000 people registered uh, for this second World Congress uh, from 16 countries, and uh, we hope to have a lot of questions from the audience. Uh, obviously, it's going to be um, different. Australia is waking up. We've got some speakers from Australia. Asia's asleep. Uh, Europe, uh, probably most of Europe's in bed. And uh, we also uh, will have some flexibility on speakers, uh, and some of our speakers may, uh, we may move the order uh, around uh, a little bit. Um, But we do have our next speaker, uh, Alexandra Calvicante from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, Alexandra is the lead investigator on the uh, ART trial. And he'll be talking about that trial um, uh, alveolar uh, recruitment for ARDS. Uh, Alexandra, you're on. OK, uh,
3: thank you. Hello to all. Uh, thanks for, for this opportunity to, to present the results of the, the art trial in the Second World Sepsis Congress. So um, these are our disclosures. Um, in, in patients with uh, ARDS, uh, functional lung size is decreased and so these patients are at increased risk for ventilator-induced lung injury. Uh, overdistension and atelectrum at, at are probably the most important mechanisms, And while we can uh, prevent, at least in part, overdistension by using low tidal volumes, a uh, very well-established st- strategy, uh, whether we can help patients by offering them a open lung approach with lung recruitment manoeuvres and titrated deep, uh, so as to avoid that trauma is much more debatable. Uh, systematic review suggest reduction in mortality, such as this one. Um, though one can see that uh, most trials at a higher risk of uh, bias and uh, these are exactly the studies which drive uh, most of the benefit which is not so clear in the studies at lower risk of bias. So uh, for those reasons we conducted the this trial art to determine whether the lung recruitment uh, strategy associated with PIP titration uh, would decrease 28-day mortality as compared to a, a low PIP strategy in patients with moderate severe ARDS. Uh, in the study, we, we, uh, before uh, randomization, we considered for enrollment patients with moderate to severe ARDS with less than 72 hours duration. And uh, before randomization, uh, all the patients went, were ventilated in a standardized uh, mechanical ventilation strategy, which was the ARDS-NET mechanical ventilation protocol with low tidal volume, low PIP. And uh, only those patients that maintained the PF ratio equal or lower than 200 uh, uh, after this this period in in standardized mechanical ventilation were, in fact, enrolled. So the idea here was to um, enroll only the sickest patients, those with uh, 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 increased risk of mortality. So the patients are randomized. And assigned to the low recruit, uh, recruitment uh, maneuver and titrated PIP arm or to the control group with low PIP without lung recruitment, without uh, uh, using PIP, uh, titrated PIP, and follow up was up to six months. Um, patients uh, in the control group continued to, do, to receive the ARDS net low PIP uh, strategy, that is, Volume controlled mechanical ventilation, a tidal volume of 6 ml per kilo. Uh, this could be adjusted down if a uh, plateau pressure was higher than 30. Respiratory rate uh, was adjusted and could be adjusted up to 35. And the PPMF fio 2 adjusted according to the ARDS next table so as to keep a uh, peripheral oxygen saturation between 88 and 95. Uh, Patients assigned to the experimental group, uh, they were immediately after after randomization, we prepared them for the recruitment maneuver. All patients received a a bolus of neuromuscular blocker and volumia was optimized. And then we started the recruitment in pressure control mode ventilation uh, using a PIP of 25 and a driving pressure of 15, 15 centimeters of water for one minute then pip was increased to 30 and then 35 so the total duration of the maneuver was uh, three minutes and the peak pressure was 50 after the le- length recruitment maneuver we uh, conducted a decrema- decremental pip trial uh, to uh, uh, to assess the better the optimal pip starting with a pip of 23 for Three minutes measuring static compliance in the end, and then decreasing peep in steps of 3 to 20, 17, 14, 11. The peep associated with best compliance plus two centimeters of water was the ideal peep. And then after the peep titration, and new recruitment maneuver, this time uh, only one minute with 35 centimeters of water of peep, and then maintenance ventilation uh, using the optimal peep for at least 24 hours. So um, the main outcome was an eight-day mortality. So there were several secondary outcomes. The study was conducted in many sites, most in Brazil, but also with the participation of other countries. We uh, took a, a great care in terms of implementation. So all the sites were trained in local before enrolling the first patient, except, except for one of the sites which was trained by web conference. Uh, many received the new sessions of tra- uh, training. Training uh, we had uh, annual investigators' meeting, formal teleconferences three times per year, WhatsApp communication for every patient randomized uh, to remind them of the study procedures, that manual of operations and phone line available twenty-four by seven. This is one of the investigators' meetings, and and one the manual of operations. So, along the trial, we uh, assessed 2,077 patients for eligibility from which we randomized 1,013, 501 to the experimental group, 512 to the control group. In the experimental group, uh, only 21 patients did not receive lung recruitment. This is because, mostly because of hypotension or Some cases of pneumothorax detected immediately after randomization, uh, and the patients in the control group all uh, received the assigned treatment. All the patients were followed up except for three cases in the control group uh, for whom consent, for those patients' consent was withdrawn. So most were included in the analysis. Here you can see the baseline data. Uh, the patients uh, had a mean age of uh, 51 years, uh, one-third were female, and with a very high CEP3 score, above 60, and um, more, than, more than two uh, non-pulmonary organ failures per patient. And m- most of them had septic shock, and time since onset of ARDS, uh, 22 hours. Um, this slide shows the, the PIP uh, uh, along the time in both groups and one can see that the PIP in the control group was uh, at moderate levels, not really low, uh, about 12, 13 uh, in, the, in the baseline first hour. And in any case, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the experimental group, it was three or four centimeters higher along the time. Uh, the effect on the main, outcomes, uh, on the main outcome surprised us. the 28-day mortality was in fact higher in the lung recruitment anti PIP group as compared to the low PIP with a hazard rate of uh, 1.20, uh, which was significant. And uh, this effect was maintained uh, within six months. And we noted that uh, the incidence of pneumotorics requiring drainage within seven days and barotrauma within seven days both were higher in the open lung approach group compared to low PIP group, uh, as was also higher the need to start or increase vasopressors or hypotension within first hour in the lung recruitment and titrated PIP group compared to the low PIP group. When we examined, the treatment effects on mortality, uh, we did not uh, observe any significant variation. That is, there was an excess mortality uh, with the open lung approach compared to the control group across the ver- uh, all the subgroups that we examined, according to pf or OCEPT-3, ty- type of ARDS, extrapulmonary versus pulmonary, duration of ARDS, position at the baseline, and and so on. Um, The study, of course, had uh, some limitations. First, it was not blinded, it was uh, not feasible to blind the the treatment. Uh, One other limitation we had, uh, um, we could not assess uh, the heterogeneity of treatment effects according, for example, to subphenotypes because they were not determined at baseline. Uh, we could not uh, assess whether treatment would cha- uh, be modified in patients who were PIP responders or not because we did not do a PIP responsiveness test at, at baseline. The study was long and care of ARDS may have changed along the trial, although we uh, could observe that the effects on uh, mortality did not change in time. And intervention was complex, so it's not really possible to tell or to ascribe whether the effects are due to, to the lung recruitment maneuver or to the titrated PIP. So in conclusion, we, in patients with moderate severe ARDS, this strategy, this lung recruitment strategy with a titrated PIP as compared to a low PIP strategy increased 8 day of cause mortality. And then we can find no support to the routine use of lung recruitment maneuvers and Pitration in these moderate-severe ARDS patients. The study has been published uh, previously, and uh, we thank the patients who participated and investigators. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Alexandra. Um, we have a couple of questions from the audience, and we do have a few minutes for questions. Uh, the first is, what is the proportion of medical versus surgical patients enrolled in the study?
3: Uh, we, we had about uh, uh, 8% of the patients uh, were medical as compared to surgical. Most patients were medical. And uh, the second question from
1: the uh, listeners uh, pertains to oxygenation index and ARDS. Uh, was there a difference uh, between the two study groups and uh, did that correlate uh, with better outcome in the low
3: PEEP group? Um, the oxygenation as assessed by PF Rachel was uh, obviously increased much more in the experimental group, the Open Lung Approach group as compared to the control group, uh, which is a, an obvious effect of uh, lung recruitment. We noticed notice it, it uh, just after recruitment titration, and an improvement in oxygenation, although as one can see, uh, a clinical effects in terms of mortality were worse in the Open Lung Approach group. Yeah,
1: and um, we have time for one last question from the chair. Um, I know you're aware, and I'm aware, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are aware uh, that uh, one of the comments about this trial is that the uh, the recruitment, the uh, the peep setting uh, following the recruitment, and that the recruitment uh, protocols. Was uh, quite aggressive, mm. and perhaps more so than uh, even uh, Peep ARDS experts would use in their practice. Uh, any comments? Mm. Uh, I know there were quite a few pneumothoraces uh, in the uh, in the Peep setting group mm. uh, compared to the low Peep. Uh, any comments on that?
3: Yeah. Um- in fact, we based this, uh, recruitment maneuver and PIP titration scheme on previous work, uh, suggesting that, uh, specifically the strategy, this recruitment maneuver would, uh, achieve optimal, uh, uh, recruitment of the collapsed lung units. And with, uh, in a, in small uh, case series, which has a uh, reasonable safety, uh, Uh, So this was the reason why we chose this maneuver. And in fact, uh, uh, this presentation was was fast. In the first half of the trial, the levels of PEEP peep and and peak pressure during the recruitment maneuver were even a bit higher than I've shown here. Uh, They achieved 60 centimeters of water, and we changed that uh, in the middle of the study. Uh, because of safety reasons and after discussing that with the Data Monitoring Committee. But it is very interesting that we did not uh, uh, notice any modification of treatment effect or mortality uh, in the first part and the second part of the study. So there was no suggestion that decreasing the levels of of, uh, the intensity of the maneuver uh, improved outcomes. So it may be that uh, lower PIP levels might have a different effect, but uh, it's not possible to be certain about it. And uh, one last quick,
1: I need for you to be brief with your response. I'm going to ask you a tough question. Do you no
3: longer use recruitment in your treatment of ARDS? I, I, don't, I don't routinely use uh, language recruitment in the treatment of ARDS patients. I don't. I I, I, I think uh, based on these these results, I, uh, I one can be uh, um, there. There's no support for 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 doing it routinely, except maybe for cases of refractory hypoxemia that were offered other therapies such as uh, prone position, for example. Okay.
1: Well, Alexandra, thank you for being with us. Uh, we're going to move now to our next speaker, uh, David Wang from Pittsburgh in the U.S., and he's going to talk about the procalcitonin-guided antibiotic consensus trial. David. Great. Thank you
4: very much, Phil. So antibiotic overuse is a major public health problem, um, contributing to antibiotic resistance. It's common in lower respiratory tract infection, and as such, there's been a huge interest in whether or not novel tests might aid. So procalcitonin, a novel biomarker that is induced by bacterial infections, yet generally suppressed by viral. And it's been Swiss investigators who have been the leaders and pioneers in this area, and they've conducted a number of trials, um, testing procalcitonin guidance versus usual care, the largest of which was ProHosp at the bottom. ProHosp was powered for safety. And their overall findings were that adverse outcomes were similar between groups, and antibiotic reduction was achieved with pro guidance. But there are two key residual questions. First, will it work in the United States? The Swiss trial used enforcement methods not feasible in the United States, and there were important differences in background care, such as longer length of stay and long antibiotic duration. And then second, is it safe? There are still some residual safety concerns, and those, uh, the lead author, ProHosp, uh, stated at chest that a large U.S. outcome study was necessary. National authorities have reached varying conclusions. Um, most recently, at the bottom, the U.S. FDA approved ProCastasonin for LRTI and sepsis to guide antibiotics in the emergency department hospital based on a meta-analysis. FDA did note the primary limitation associated with meta-analysis was lack of US trial sites. So this formed the rationale behind PROACT. PROACT was a two-arm trial, usual care versus procalcitonin. We conducted it in 14 US hospitals, mostly urban tertiary care academic centers with high compliance with national US uh, quality measures for pneumonia and no routine procalcitonin use and the two aims reflected the two residual questions will it work is it safe we enrolled patients in the emergency department who were adults with a primary clinical diagnosis of acute lrti and then most importantly where the clinician was willing to consider procalcitonin in their antibiotic decision making in order to capture cases with clinical uncertainty We excluded conditions where where physicians would be unlikely to withhold antibiotics such as organ failures, relatively common conditions where procalcitonin can be falsely high, and then conditions rendering follow-up difficult. Regarding choosing the usual care arm, in 2005, NIH uh, held a two-day conference entirely devoted to this single question and concluded each trial needs a unique approach. So we chose an approach between complete unfettered wild type and an active control on the belief that trials should test novel interventions on a background of best care. So, for example, we chose sites with demonstrated commitment to best LRTI care, and we disseminated current LRTI antibiotic guidelines during the study. So, for example, each site received this poster on the left of National Antibiotic Guidelines, and the right is the Procalcitonin Guidelines. To implement the protocol, we used a multifaceted quality improvement principled approach. So, for example, there was extensive pre-launch education, and then for live enrollments, we had two goals, rapidly reporting the procalcitonin levels, and then facilitating adherence to the procalcitonin guideline. For the guideline, we used the same cutoffs as in prior trials and as approved by FDA. Briefly, the guideline stated that procalcitonin was low, antibiotics were discouraged, and the converse. And the ask of our clinical colleagues was simple, please look at the information and then the final decision is yours. So the intervention was reporting the result resultant Guideline to the clinician rapidly in the emergency department and serially if hospitalized. We then provided feedback in the form of a letter to the primary care physician at the time of discharge. And then we reviewed all cases of guideline non-adherence with the site PIs who then discussed these cases with the individual clinicians. In usual care, we measured procalcitonin, but it was a clinically unavailable. And we published our results in May of this year. Of 3,800 patients that met entry criteria, we enrolled 1,664, of whom 8 requested a complete withdrawal, leaving a final sample of 1,656 patients, of whom 86% completed follow-up. We then used multiple invitations to impute missing data for the primary intention-to-treat analysis. Forty percent of the patients had asthma, a third COPD, a quarter acute bronchitis, and a fifth community-acquired pneumonia. Most patients, over three quarters, presented with very low procalcitonin levels, thus giving ample opportunity for procalcitonin guidance to work. Half were hospitalized. a third, over a third, received antibiotics in the ED, and about sixty percent by day thirty. protocol implementation was achieved 96% of the time in the emergency department with a median reporting time of 77 minutes and 92% of the time in the ED and hospital for all or or all but one procalcitonin level. And conversely, there was minimal contamination in the usual care group. Procalcitonin guideline adherence was noted 73% of the time in the ED, 65% of the time in the combined ED hospital period, did not change over the course of the trial, was higher for asthma and acute bronchitis versus pneumonia and COPD, was higher for the higher PCT tiers versus the lower. And then the top two reasons for giving antibiotics despite low procalcitonin was belief the bacterial infection was present and belief that the patient had a COPD exacerbation requiring antibiotics. For the primary outcome of antibiotic days by day 30, we found no difference in the intention to treat analysis with similar results for the per protocol, per guideline, and two sensitivity analysis. There were also no significant differences in any subgroups. Similarly, there was no differences in adverse outcomes. As for secondary outcomes, there was no significant difference in several secondary measures of antibiotic exposure. However, for acute bronchitis, antibiotic prescription in the emergency department was cut in half. This finding was robust to a strict Bonferroni correction. It is, however, nonetheless a secondary outcome of a subgroup. So why negative? So first of all, procalcitome was associated with emergency department antibiotic prescription in both groups. So if you look at the left-hand side of the figure, for the about 70% of the patients presenting with the lowest procalcitonin values, whether or not the clinician received the procalcitonin value. So in blue is control, in red is intervention. Antibiotic prescription was relatively low, about a third, and very similar between arms. And then if you look at the right-hand side of the figure, of those patients presenting with very high procalcitonin levels, again, you see that antibiotic prescription was very similar between arms. Now in the middle, there appeared to be maybe some difference, but the vast majority of patients presented in the lowest or highest tier. Procalcitonin was also associ- associated with clinical signs and outcomes. So if you look at, for example, number of SERS criteria, as you rose from the lowest to highest tier, number of SERS criteria doubled, as did the clinician's percent estimate of bacteria etiology. Similar dose response uh, effect, if you will, was seen for several outcomes, such as hospitalization and ICU admission. So in this context, we concluded procalcitonin likely only provided modest incremental information. But also, that maybe antibiotic withholding initially done during the study period was then overruled post-discharge. So if you look at the hospital- hospitalization in day one epochs, uh, Numerically, at least, pro-calcitonin, uh, in the procalcitonin arm, there was less antibiotic prescription compared to usual care. But this effect was less, was less pronounced uh, from discharge to day 30. ProHosp also saw lower control group antibiotic use compared to prior publications. So for example, our mean, uh, our mean antibiotic use was, uh, antibiotic course duration was 4.3 days, half that of ProHosp. And this may reflect the growing movement over the last 10 years towards shorter courses. Also, less than a third of the patients in the control arm with acute bronchitis received antibiotics, uh, substantially less than prior publications. And then, lastly, there was lower ad- clinician adherence to the ProCalciton guideline, which likely reflects a uh, difference in, in methods and design. So in conclusion, for patients presenting with suspected lower respiratory tract infection in urban tertiary care academic centers with high pneumonia core measure compliance, relatively low baseline antibiotic use, and education of national LRTI antibiotic guidelines, provision of a pro guideline to emergency department and hospital clinicians did not reduce antibiotic use with the possible exception of acute bronchitis. Thank you
1: very much. Thank you very much, uh David. Um, I don't see any questions yet uh from the audience, so uh, I'll start with one um, if If you had a redo on this study um, it, how would you change the uh, trial design uh, that you f- would make you feel like uh, you'd have a better shot? At uh, getting a better outcome.
4: Um, well, to, to answer the question that we wanted to that we wanted to answer, would implementation of the Stone guideline, uh, as is uh, as is currently approved by FDA, um, change change management? I wouldn't really change much. Um, if I wanted to try and if I want to answer a, a different question, uh, to hopefully actually reduce antibiotic use, I might consider combining procalcitonin with another tool, such as um, a formalized antibiotic stewardship program, which would which, which require a lot more work than, than just providing procalcitonin values, or as was done in, in a previous publication, possibly combining it with a with, uh, with a respiratory panel testing, with the thought that if somebody's, um, for example, flu positive but a negative, that might be strong enough data to persuade clinicians to withhold antibiotics, antibacterials.
1: Okay, um, I think we're just about uh, right on time, uh, so I want to try to keep us on time as much as I can. Um, so, but I, let me ask you one more question. Um, the, it, it seemed like, uh, that there was no consideration in the protocol of uh, how the procalcitonin changed between two time points. Um, is that correct or, or incorrect uh, that it was more of a decision based on a point procalcitonin as opposed to a change by so much? Uh,
4: yes. So we did provide serial values. Um, past papers have used, uh, past papers have said, um, uh, past guidelines have said stop antibiotics if pro is below a certain cut point, or if ORF has decreased by 80 to 90%. Um, but a reason that that would be a bit too, complicated to 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 um inculcate in everybody's heads, and also a reason that the, probably the majority of patients would present with relatively low procalcitonin levels rendering the delta 80 to 90% uh, unnecessary
1: yeah you know it's um like many decisions we make in, in critical care uh, they're they're really not made uh based Primarily on one variable in most cases. Uh, for example, white blood cell count uh, is integrated with fever with chest x-ray appearance. Um, you know and, and it may be that uh, you know pro procalcitonin uh, is another variable uh, that offers utility. Uh, but it's just difficult to show it in isolation. Um, anyway, David, uh, nice study. Uh, appreciate you joining us here. And uh, we're going to move on now uh, to the next speaker. Have a good evening. Thank you. Um, our next speaker uh, will be Derek Angus uh, from Pittsburgh, uh, U.S. Uh, Derek's going to talk... About um, a a platform trial that studies multiple interventions, uh, the REMAP-CAP trial. Uh, I was first introduced to this subject when uh, Derek gave a plenary uh, two or three years ago at the uh, SCCM meeting. But uh, we look for ways to leverage our electronic medical records, uh, which were uh, made more for billing than anything else, I think most people would think. And uh, Derek's going to talk about uh, how this might be uh, uh, the wave of the future. Derek?
5: Phil, yeah, thanks. Um, Lovely to be here. Um, So thanks for the nice introduction. So yeah, I'm going to talk about um, uh, this trial called REMAP-CAP, And what I'll try to do is explain a little bit what this REMAP concept is. The piece stands for community-acquired pneumonia, and the focus is severe community-acquired pneumonia. That's the easier part of this talk. So um, I think the reason I was asked to speak about this a little bit is because in a session on clinical trials, one of the things you have to talk about is the fact that trials themselves, um, uh, in many ways, let us down as clinicians, and they do so for several reasons. One is, published, we we end up saying, oh, you know, the trial is too narrow. and It was a very cherry-picked population. It doesn't really represent the the real world. And at the same time, we criticize it for being too narrow. We also say it's too broad in that um, we don't get any treatment uh, effects across individual subgroups of patients and so forth. And so it's almost like a Goldilocks problem where the trial is both simultaneously too narrow and too broad. The other problem is that we don't really like, um, you know, traditional trials are nicely designed to compare treatment A to treatment B. Uh, But in our modern ICU, we admit patients to the ICU with complex admission orders with maybe over 50 things, and then we add many more things each day. And so, in a way, the questions are no longer, is A better than B, but is A better than B versus C versus D versus E? And how does that uh, information depend on whether I'm also giving E or F or G? Now, that makes for very complicated trial designs. At the same time, uh, increasingly, it's hard to get people into trials. Um, We don't want to be in the trials ourselves, or we don't want our patients to be in the trials no one wants to be a guinea pig. No one wants to be in the trial where there's only a 50% chance of getting the right treatment. And so, in many ways, what we've done is we've created two worlds that look like each other, but they operate in parallel. There's the world of clinical care, and then there's also the world of clinical research. There's inherent inefficiency in this, and they sort of look similar, but they almost talk different kinds of things. And so, against this backdrop. There's been a desire, not just in critical care, but in other fields as well, to think, how can we make trials smarter, giving more personalized answers for different subgroups of patients, and considering multiple combinations of treatments and so forth, and yet, how at the same time, can we also make them safer, where there's a lower chance of being in the so-called bad arm? I mean, if there's going to be a trial that shows that treatment A is better than B, How can I try to make sure that as few people as possible get treatment B? And ideally, you'd like to actually say, you know what? It would be better to be in the trial than be out of the trial. Okay, so in response to that, uh, researchers have come up with a couple of different kinds of options. Uh, The first is so-called point-of-care clinical trials that try to embed clinical trials into clinical practice. Uh, tries to get closer to exactly what's happening at a point of care. Um, This began in the Veterans Administration in diabetes, where they tried to use the electronic health record to recognize moments where clinicians were about to start diabetics with unstable blood sugars on alternative strategies to provide insulin. We said, "Uh aha, this is a moment right here to randomize to, for example, sliding scale versus a weight based algorithm. And these first trials were so successful that there's now some very large scale efforts of trying to nest or embed clinical trials into clinical practice and make them much more efficient. Now, these trials are more efficient, but they're still A versus B trials. Another area of research, quite separate was the development of so-called platform trials. These are adaptive trials that say we're going to take a condition like, say, breast cancer, and we're going to try to get everyone with breast cancer into the trial, and we will simultaneously test all sorts of interventions at the same time. We're going to have essentially perpetual enrollment, and we're going to use uh, Bayesian statistics to try to update our probabilities of what's working And at the heart of these kinds of trials, we'll actually try to stop answering or testing interventions that are not looking very good. Now, uh, the poster child for this kind of trial is a design called uh, I Spy 2 in breast cancer. It's received a lot of national and international attention. And about 18 months or two years ago now, uh, there was almost an entire issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, giving some of the early results uh, of iSpy2. And iSpy2 had managed to test multiple different drugs with really tiny sample sizes. And so then the question is, well, what did they do here that was so smart? And when you look in the paper, you see this very complex randomization scheme that's shown here that's called response-adaptive randomization. And it's useful to just unpack what that is because it's also at the heart of remap cat. So when we do a normal trial, we start the trial with presumably we're fifty 50 about whether the trial about whether A is better than B. If the trial is successful, when we get to the end, we're now sure that A is 90, we're ninety nine percent sure that A is better than B. But what about in the middle? During the trial, the trial itself was accruing information and going from 50-50 to 99. Could that be exploited? So imagine if you were doing a 400-patient trial of testing A versus B, and imagine if we were somehow able to understand what was happening in the trial live. If after 40 patients enrolled, you saw a situation like this where A is clearly doing better than B, Imagine if the trial itself could then make a bet. At this point, we know that A is 78% more likely to be superior than B. So imagine if for the next 40 patients, although it was still random, you made the odds of getting A a 78% chance of getting A. And if that were a correct bet, then by just 80 patients in, the trial would be done and you could get rid of B and you could go on to the next question. Of course, if it wasn't correct, then in the third set of 40 patients, you could move back more to the middle and, and and go back to 50. But this responding, having the randomization adapt on the basis of the early response in the trial, is the heart of response adaptive randomization. So you could have a patient of a particular type of pneumonia, and you might want to try three treatments A, B, and C. And if the patient goes through the trial, data are accrued and then those data are accrued and they update a statistical model, which can then change the randomization rule during the trial to, for example, put more patients into B and fewer patients get exposed to C if C doesn't look very good. So they're minimizing the odds of getting the bad performing trial. And you can also have rules that would even trigger activating a new arm like Arm D or dropping an arm. And importantly, you can have different weights, not only for one type of patient, but for another type of patient uh, who still has pneumonia but has other features that make them look like a different And that gets us to what we call remap. And I'm sorry this slide doesn't build very well, but basically we have a platform that allows perpetual enrollment and continuous learning and moving up from the bottom of the slide. Uh, That platform is adaptive in that we're matching the odds of success to the odds of assignment. It's multifactorial in that you can consider multiple treatments and subgroups. Um, It's also embedded in that you try to actually trigger enrollment uh, aligned with a particular point in care, such as, for example, a patient has arrived in the ED to something that looks like pneumonia, and you're calling for an ICU bed. You're writing the ICU admission orders. Could those orders themselves be the randomized orders? And, of course, you still keep it randomized for causal impact. And the first big move in this space in sepsis is REMAP-CAP, focusing on severe community card pneumonia because it's still a huge problem worldwide. It's intended actually to be global. It was designed by investigators in several parts of the world, and it's already funded in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and now in Canada with a grant under review in the U.S., simultaneously testing antimicrobial strategies, immune therapies, and ventilation strategies. What's key about this design is that patients are preferentially assigned to the best-performing arm. And so although the allocation is random, it isn't necessarily proportional. It is instead proportional to the best-performing arms. So if one arm is doing better than another, you'll be more likely to get that arm. And it's embedded in that it's triggered by the call for the ICU. Now I'm going to explain the trial, how the trial works in the last minute or two, just by telling you a couple of things. So you have different domains inside the trial, like a domain is a choice of antibiotics or a choice of steroids. And within each domain, there are multiple interventions. And then the combination of all of these is like a regimen or a recipe, which can actually be different for different strata or subgroups of patients, for example, presenting in shock or not. And so you can have quite complex regimens depending on the combinations of interventions within domain. The idea in all of this is if you get back to simple questions like, should my severe cat patient receive IV hydrocortisone, we all know clinically it depends on whether shock is present, whether we think the underlying cause is viral or not, whether there's concomitant use of an antiviral, and so on. And this trial design will give separate probability estimates for each consideration. So in the last slide, let me show you how this is being planned to roll out. These are complicated trials um, uh, to, uh, to design, and so that means you have to simulate them ahead of time. So um, in, uh, in this trial design, I'll show you here, imagine if in the real world it were really true that out of eight possible regimens, Options 5 and 8, shown in green, were truly better with a 20% mortality rate, and then four of them were much worse with a 30% mortality rate shown in red. If after 2,000 patients you'd done a regular trial, the black line shows the 250 patients per arm that would be the even division into eighths of the 2,000. But these trials, these adaptive trials, although they didn't know which was better, they end up putting more patients into the green arms because they learn as the trial proceeds. And the interesting thing is that then at 2,000 patients in with the same power, there have been 80 fewer deaths. If only one arm was better and it didn't know which arm, you can see here that the trials load into that best arm, which in this instance is the eighth arm with higher power and, again, with a lot fewer deaths, deaths. So it's actually safer to be in the trial. So in conclusion, randomized trials, it's great to randomize. The idea of doing a randomized experiment is still our strongest truth finder, but the current trial enterprise lets us down. The REMAP design combines two new RCT developments, these so-called point of care trials, and marries it to these so-called platform trials. And REMAP-CAT is an application of this new REMAP design that represents a new approach in sepsis to hopefully generate smarter and safer evidence generation where we can almost envision a world where we start to fuse care with research. With that, thanks very much. Thank you, Derek. Uh,
1: We have time for one quick question, and uh, since we don't have one from the audience, I'm going to take the liberty of asking you, how do you deal with consent, informed consent in these type of trials?
5: Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, informed consent in the US, we don't know <laughs> when it was submitted uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, in part because Remap Cap currently is testing different versions of usual care, it was, and because these patients present an emergency, it was uh, approved with a, a deferred consent. And a similar sort of deferred consent has been approved in Australia. Um, there isn't such a thing as deferred consent in the U.S. Uh, it may, depending on, the, on how innocuous or not the interventions are, it may get a waiver of consent if it's seen as uh, different variations of usual care, or you may simply have to get prospective consent. If you get prospective consent, um, even though you're testing multiple different things, the consent form can still say by being in this trial, uh, you're, going to be, you're going to be exposed to one of three or four different antibiotic choices. You may or may not get steroids, and you may or may not be in a particular way of managing the ventilator. It's not dramatically different from the consents that people sometimes even give just for the sort of things that happen in care in the ICU. But it's a good question. I mean, this is forging new territory, and it's forcing IRBs to think about relatively complicated explanations. I will say one thing though, that is the general idea of actually trying to have a trial design that helps the patient by improving the odds of the patient being in the best performing arm, actually is in line with what a lot of patients actually think clinical trials are trying to do in the first place. Yeah, they always,
1: they a lot of them just. They, they're convinced it's a good thing and they want the treatment. They're bothered by the, uh, the flip of the coin.
5: Yeah, uh, they, don't actually, they don't actually understand that half of the time they might get the placebo. So in a way, this trial design is closer to what the lay public often think research ought to look like. Great. Derek,
1: that's uh, very nicely done, and uh, we're going to stay close to on time by uh, moving on now. Uh, to to, uh, Bala Vinkatesh, University of Queensland in Australia and uh, Bala is the uh, lead investigator on the recent uh, high profile adrenal trial so uh, Bala, good morning and uh, go for it. Um, Philip, good morning and uh, thank you for the kind introduction
6: and Thank you for the invitation to the World Sepsis Congress. Um, the, yeah, I'm, I'm live. and uh, it's um, So the, we all know that mortality in patients with severe sepsis and septic shock range anywhere between 30 and 50%. And steroids have been used as an adjunct treatment in sepsis for more than 60 years. And there's been substantial uncertainty about their safety and efficacy. In 2018, we reported the results of the adrenal trial, which have added substantially to the evidence base, and I'm very pleased to present some of the results at this meeting. So as a bit of a background, when steroids were initially attempted in RCTs in patients with septic shock, they were used in high doses at a dose of 30 milligrams per kilo, of methylprednisolone, which translates to 10 grams per day of hydrocortisone. Two randomized trials were conducted in the 80s, and both trials showed an increase in mortality and morbidity in the intervention arm. So following these trials, the use of steroids declined. But in the late 90s, there was an interest, the use of low-dose steroids, uh, that's at a dose range of 200 to 300 milligrams of hydrocortisone per day, not 10 grams per day. And that followed the publication of these two reports. One is the identification of improved blood pressure response to inotropes when patients receive steroids. And secondly, the finding that there might be relative insufficiency in these patients with septic shock identified by a corticotropin test. So, based on these two reports, two randomized controlled trials were performed in the first decade of the new millennium um, using low-dose corticosteroids and septic shock. The first one was the Anand trial in 2002, which used hydrocortisone and flutrocortisone, and the second was the corticus trial by Charlie Sprung in 2008, which used only hydrocortisone. Now, following the publication of these trials, there was the results generated substantial debate, and the reason really was, one, in relation to the mortality benefit. There was no benefit on intention to treat analysis in both trials, but in the French trial in, in 2002, there was a differential treatment effect in the steroid arm, particularly in the corticotropin non-respondent. Which was not identifiable in the Corticus trial subsequently. Neither trial had the statistical power to detect a substantial difference in mortality. And importantly, nearly a quarter of the patients in both trials received Atomidate, a known adrenal suppressant. So the question really was what impact did these have on the confounding of the treatment results, was unknown. So following these two trials, there was there was even more uncertainty, as reflected by a number of international surveys and and it's really against this background that we decided to undertake the adrenal trial in australia and new zealand um, this was a This was really a trial with sufficient statistical power. this was a trial in an accommodate free environment, and this was a trial where we surveyed the clinicians to determine the level of equipoise that they had before we, we conducted the trial. The trial was funded by the Health Research Councils of Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. And the aim of our trial was to determine if hydrocortisone treatment reduced mortality in critically ill patients admitted to an ICU with septic shock, and the hypothesis being that hydrocortisone will reduce 90-day all-cause mortality in these patients. The study design was a parallel group-blinded international trial in five countries, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Denmark, and Saudi Arabia. The inclusion criteria were really mechanically ventilated patients with septic shock, and there were a standard exclusion criteria for sepsis patients, but the key one was that patients who had had prior exposure to accommodate were not eligible for enrollment into the trial. The trial treatment was an uh, uh, infusion of 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone per day or a matched placebo for a maximum of seven days or until discharge from intensive care. The primary outcome was day 90 mortality, and we had a whole raft of secondary outcomes which, uh, which are listed. And the sample size based on a baseline mortality of 33%. And aiming for a 5% absolute risk reduction and 90% power was 3,800 patients, 1,900 in each arm. And just to put the size and magnitude of adrenal into perspective uh, in comparison to the other septic shock trials, um, you can see that the adrenal is nearly one and a half times the size of all the other trials put together. The results... The two groups were similar at baseline with respect to admission di- diagnosis, the sources of sepsis as in medical surgical, baseline interventions, and organ failure. The primary
7: outcome adjustment for stratification variables and additional
6: covariates, there were no differences between the two groups. The time to death, shown by the Kaplan- Kaplan-Meier curve, again, was not different between the two groups. The primary outcome was examined in six pre-specified types. The sex, the admission source, medical versus surgical, the severity of shock in terms of the catecholamine chate- dose and randomization, the site of sepsis, the severity of illness, and the time of onset of shock to randomization in six hourly epochs and, again, there was no difference between the two groups. When we looked at the pr- analysis of primary outcome by region, there were there any deog- geographic differences and, again, there was no difference between the two groups with respect to the geographic region. When we looked at the secondary outcomes, they told us a slightly different story. Hydrocortisone was associated with a more rapid resolution of shock. Patients assigned to hydrocortisone had a shorter duration of the initial episode of mechanical ventilation. Patients assigned to hydrocortisone had an earlier time to ICU discharge, and patients assigned to hydrocortisone had a reduced frequency of blood transfusion. There were no significant differences between the two groups with respect to recurrence of shock, need for renal replacement. The currents of mechanical ventilation and superinfections as defined by new onset bacteremia or fungemia. There was a small but a slightly higher incidence of adverse effects of the hydrocortisone group, but these didn't impact on patient-centered outcomes. So to summarize the principal findings, hydrocortisone did not lead to a reduction in mortality at 90 days in patients with septic shock. And this was not different in any of the six predefined groups. But hydrocortisone was associated with a more rapid resolution of shock, a shorter duration of the episode of mechanical ventilation, an earlier time to ICA discharge, and a reduced frequency of blood transfusion. This was reported in the New England Journal in the March issue this year. And I would like to acknowledge my colleagues and collaborators and all the site investigators who were part of this important trial. And in the same issue of the journal, the APROX trial was published where This was the original, the Anand group who reported the initial trial in 2002. They compared hydrocortisone plus hydrocortisone and they reported a difference in mortality um, in in the treatment arm, as well as important differences in the secondary outcomes, very similar to adrenal. So the question really was, what were the differences between the two trial populations? And I think Simon will be examining this in more detail in his next presentation, so I won't go into that. But essentially, uh, what I can show you is that when we applied the APROX inclusion criteria with the adrenal cohort and when we performed a post hoc sensitivity analysis, we can see the mortality rates are similar to what was observed in the APROX trial, 41 and 44 percent, but there were no treatment differences, significant di- treatment differences between the two groups. When we all went back and applied the sepsis 3 criteria to the adrenal cohort, And the mortality was thirty-two and thirty-five percent. Again, there were no significant differences between the two groups. So, we believe that the results of adrenal are generalizable. It's a pragmatic trial. We stipulate a minimum doses of inotropes or pressors for entry to the trial. The results were concordant in five different healthcare systems, and the results were consistent when different inclusion criteria were applied. We also more recently reported the long-term outcomes of the adrenal trial, the six month mortality, uh, and again, there were no differences, significant differences between the two groups at six months. A recent systematic review and meta-analysis was published by Sophie Reigard um, after the publication of Adrenal and Aprox. There was no difference in short-term mortality or longer-term mortality between the two groups. So to conclude, I think the the adrenal trial has added substantially to the evidence base. And even if steroids don't decrease mortality, the secondary effects are very important patient-centered outcomes. The differences were significant. And importantly, there's no evidence of harm and And I think that the role of steroids in septic shock are much clearer after the publication of these two trials and and these will probably result in significant health economic benefits, and the results are likely to change guidelines thank you for the for your time and uh, thank you for the invitation
1: thank you uh, bala i I know you're a scientist um but when you get up and present this data and you have to say this is a negative trial and you look at those beautiful Kaplan-Meier curves uh, with the separation that uh, it's about as nice a looking separation, consistent separation on a Kaplan-Meier with these secondary endpoints, um, do you do you feel just a little bit of hesitancy when you have to say this was a negative trial?
6: Um, Phil, well, so look, I I don't. Um, it, it's a good question. I I don't believe it's a um, um it's a negative trial because I think there are a few important messages there, which are uh, the secondary outcomes are significant. If if one day difference if you're going to be on the mechanical ventilator for one day less if the shock is reversed one day earlier if you're spending one day less in intensive care and even keeping the blood transfusion aside it's hard to know what that actually be. that's something we weren't really um, expecting to see and uh, and that may just be a hypothesis generating finding but the others are all very significant important outcomes uh, and i think um, um, they are. They are. They They benefit patients. So, uh, especially in the in the absence of harm, and and I think this will also translate into if you put some dollar values on these on these outcome benefits, I think it'll result in significant cost savings for the healthcare system. So I don't believe the study is negative uh, from a secondary outcome perspective.
1: That makes sense. Uh, that's a that's a very nice uh, perspective to take uh on this trial um one one uh well i'm going to move on and because i don't know exactly what simon's is going to do but uh i'm sure he can make if anybody can make sense of the steroid trials i'm sure it's him uh so we're going to move on to our next speaker uh simon Finfer from sydney australia uh, his title is Making Sense of the Steroid Trials.
8: Simon, good morning. Uh, th- thank you, Phil, and uh, it's a pleasure to be back um, speaking to the Congress. Um, I'm going to, as the title says, try to make some sense of the steroid trials um, and answer the question of whether we finally know the answer about whether we should be treating people with septic shock, with, with steroids or not. So I'm, I may be repeating some of what Bala has covered, but to, just to do a little bit of the historical context. So the, the interest in steroids for, for, for treating sepsis or treating infections has, has been around for 50 or more years. And in the mid to late 80s, the concept of using steroids was to use high-dose steroids very early in the um, course of someone with severe sepsis or particularly septic shock on the basis of believing that sepsis was predominantly a Um, inflammatory cascade and if one could interrupt that cascade early in the course of the disease you could basically abort it um, and improve people's outcomes and of course we now understand that like most things sepsis is far more complicated than that fairly simple concept and the efforts to change outcome with early high dose steroids were either the trial's suggested there was either no benefit and and possibly that giving high-dose steroids um, was causing harm. So that um, approach to the use of corticosteroids was fairly short-lived and interest in using them in in this condition um, really disappeared for a number of years. There were, Obviously, it hasn't gone away because we're still talking about it. Um, and then the next concepts that appeared were really around the end of uh, the 1990s, so the, what is the end of last century now, um, where evidence was produced that coincided with people's clinical impression at the bedside that giving corticosteroids seemed to have some beneficial effect in that it allowed you to reduce the dose or appeared to assist in getting rid of vasopressors that were being treated to used to keep people's blood pressure up and of course that to intensive care clinicians appears to be a beneficial effect because we we use these surrogate outcome measures we we use changes in oxygenation, changes in the amount of vasopressors we're treating with as indications of whether we're, we're treating people successfully or not because clearly people who are not coming off vasopressors or having higher doses are not getting better. So when we give a treatment that does that, we tend to assume that it's going to result in improvements in survival and improvements in other outcomes that are important to patients. And there were data produced, but you know, and Jalali Anain has really been central to this whole steroid question. And he published data um, in 1998 from a very uh, small number of patients, which demonstrated that uh, you could wean vasopressors off quite quickly. And in not only that, that there appeared to be a group of patients who didn't respond with a, to a um, dose of synthetic ACTH uh, with an, a cortisol increment and that these patients who were labeled um, impaired adrenal functional reserve or non-responders to a synecthen test um, seemed to be the ones in whom steroids were helpful in weaning from uh, vasopressors. And these these data were confirmed in uh, really his pivotal trial, in which three hundred patients from nineteen French ICUs between nineteen ninety five and nineteen ninety nine were treated with hydrocortisone and with um and there was demonstrated faster shock resolution in the – this was a randomized controlled trial. So the patients who were randomly assigned to receive the steroid treatment had faster shock resolution. Um, And again, this is – although this is a surrogate outcome measure, it was taken to indicate benefit. But what really caused people to be interested in that trial was a reduction in mortality now, overall, over all the patients who were, in, were included in the trial, there was a reduction in mortality, but it didn't reach statistical significance um, for the patients overall. And the patients who were included in the trial had a synecthen test, so they were given uh, 250 micrograms a dose intravenously of um, a synthetic ACTH and had a cortisol measured before and then uh, um, twice afterwards. And those who didn't have an incremental increase in their synacthen test, uh, cortisol in response to synacthen, although this wasn't known at the time they went into trial, this was only known after the event. In those patients, in an adjusted analysis, so adjusted for some baseline severity measures, there was a significant reduction in uh, 28-day mortality and in-hospital mortality. And that resulted in um this treatment being widely adopted and, and in and in fact shortly after the trial was published there was a shortage of synectin in the United States because everyone started doing synectin tests on their patients um and treating them with corticosteroids, presumably stopping if they did have a good response to synectin. but of course we we don't know what happens in, in clinical practice um with great detail. Now, these data obviously was a relatively small trial, um, 300 patients, and it's very important that we try to replicate the results of clinical trials because... a clinical trial is just one experiment and it produces a, a suggestion of benefit. but it's very important that we try to replicate the results rather than just applying them all over the world based on one trial. So, Charlie Sprung led the Cortis, Corticus trial, um, which looked at the same question, um, it it was conducted predominantly in Europe. There were some problems with recruitment, which meant that the trial was stopped early um, after the recruitment of um, 499 patients rather than the planned 800. Um, There were some issues around um, whether the right patients were being recruited. But the bottom line was that there was, although there was earlier shock reversal with hydrocortisone, There was no reduction in mortality, no improvement in survival apparent in any of the patient groups, including those who did not respond to a synecthen test. So we were left then in the modern era of lower-dose corticosteroid treatment for um, septic shock with two randomized controlled trials with divergent results. And there are a number of issues there. One, one, obviously, was around statistical power. These are still relatively small trials. And um, what, what uh, people should remember is that the power, statistical power from a clinical trial comes not from the number of patients you include but the number of outcome events. So you can have a relatively small trial with lots of people dying and you'll still have reasonable power. There were some other issues around. There was quite uh, certainly in um, the original, the trial by, led by Jalalia Nain, there was quite a lot of Atomidate use and Atomidate is an intravenous anesthetic or sedative agent that inhibits steroid synthesis. So one question was, were these the patients who were responding? By to or having improved outcome with corticosteroids because you're inhibiting steroid synthesis by using Atomidate as a sedative or, a, or a, an anesthetic agent to intubate patients. And they, those patients would do better if they had steroid replacement. The other question which um, is, is very interesting is, is whether fl- the fludrocortisone that was given in Jalalia Nain's trial has an effect. It was given orally and a lot of, there's a temptation for us to think, well, it's a small dose, there should be enough mineralocorticoid effect in the 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone given, but nevertheless, that was a difference between these two trials. So, as a result of these trials, there's a great deal of debate and, and an enormous amount of practice variation in Um, some pharmaceutical companies sponsored trials of septic shock uh, in which I've been involved in in roles in the steering committee and in publications that one can see, 50% of patients in the trials were receiving corticosteroid treatments and 50% were not. So there was almost complete uh, equipoise in the overall community about whether we should be treating people with steroids or not. And this uncertainty um, and the fact that there was such practice variation led to uh, these the two further trials. I am sure Barla has given you a very uh, good description of the uh, adrenal trial, which he led and we conducted um, predominantly in Australia and New Zealand, but al- also in in other countries. And at the same time again, Jalali Nain and his group were conducting another trial looking at hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone for adults with septic shock. So these two trials had some notable differences. I mean, the, clearly they produced different results. Once again, Jalali Anain's uh, uh, data suggested that hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone significantly reduced mortality, whereas the adrenal trial found no uh, significant benefit from that treatment. So if we look at what were the differences between these two trials, um, Firstly, the uh, Jalalia Nains trial started off as a two-by-two uh, two factorial trial looking at drotrocogan alpha activated as well which activated protein C, but that um, the, uh, drug was taken off the market during the trial and that um, side of the study was stopped. Probably the notice- noticeable differences were that the patients in Jalali and trial needed to be on significantly more vasopressor um, in order to be included in the trial. The fludrocortisone, both trials used 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone um, given intermittently in the French-led trial versus an infusion in the adrenal trial. Both obviously were placebo-controlled, and the primary outcome for both was 98-day all-cause mortality with a variety of other secondary outcomes. So why did or how do we make sense of these, again, two different results where, once again, um, a trial led by Jalali Anain is suggesting a significant benefit and that we should all be treating our patients with septic shock with steroids, certainly the ones who, who fit his inclusion criteria. Um, and should we also be using fludrocortisone? So the adrenal trial in which, of course, I was involved, um, we did look in a post hoc sensitivity analysis at the patients who would have um, been included in Jalali and Ains trial. And we, again, there is a reduction in mortality um the the odds ratio for um ninety day mortality and indeed for twenty eight day mortality, but I think ninety day is more important um because pretty well everyone's out of the hospital by then um is is around point eight six so it's suggesting a reduction in mortality with hydrocortisone, although this doesn't reach statistical significance um and again one can discuss whether that is we should just dismiss something that appears beneficial but doesn't reach statistical significance. The other issue around the infusion versus intermittent dosing um there was clearly a physiological effect of the steroid infusion in adrenal with an increase in, in blood pressure and a more rapid weaning of, of vasopressors and some other secondary outcomes. So the the infusion, whether we give it by intermittent dosage or infusion, hydrocortisone clearly has physiological effects in, in terms of um, reducing vasopressor dose and improving blood pressure. So I don't think the, we, we should say, okay, it's intermittent dosing versus infusion. If we give it intermittently, it'll work. And if we give it by infusion, it won't. The other interesting thing from the adrenal data is this physiological effect um, dissipates beyond day seven. And both trials, the steroids were stopped at, um, at day seven without being weaned. So, the other question that's very interesting is whether it is due to flutrocortisone. The two trials that have shown a benefit um, were trials that used flutrocortisone. This was tested in another trial that, uh, again, led by Jalali and name, but it was a very small trial, um, and again, there was a reduction in hospital mortality in the in the subset who. Got fludrocortisone, but this didn't reach statistical significance, so that is unclear. We can try to make um, we can try to make sense of this whole question by looking at meta-analyses, and there have been two meta-analyses published since those two most recent trials, and those two meta-analyses have essentially come to the same conclusion that that. Hydrocortisone or corticosteroid treatment may produce a minor reduction in mortality, but it is not overwhelmingly convincing. So where are we left at the, rent, at, at the end of all this? The, if steroids reduce mortality, it is likely the effect is small. Of the other intermittent effects, that things like time on ventilator, time in the ICU in the hospital do matter to patients, and I believe I think it is defensible to use treatments that reduce the time people spend on a ventilator, and particularly because patients hate that. The role of fludrocortisone, although many people have dismissed it, is unclear, and if we look at this dispassionately, this is a. The two trials that have produced an effect, this drug was used. And although it's tempting to dismiss it on physiological grounds, I think that is possibly unwise. And maybe we do need to do a proper trial looking at the role of flutricortisone. I don't see any particularly important harmful effects to patients in the data and I must admit that I have changed my own practice somewhat and I am I prior to these trials being published I did not treat people with septic shock with corticosteroids and now I am much more inclined to do so so as always there are unanswered questions um, and uh, my My own take on this is at, the, is at the moment uh it is more defensible based on the body of evidence that's available to us now to treat people with corticosteroids than not uh but it would i think we do need some more data to be absolutely certain that we're doing the right thing or not.
1: Simon, thank you for enlightening us. Um, we're a little over. Uh, we don't have any questions from the audience. Uh, you just told us that uh, you do on occasions now use uh, steroids, uh, intermittent or continuous infusion.
8: Um, in mostly intermittent. Um, I think the concern about using steroids intermittently was mostly around um, glucose homeostasis and causing intermittent. Um, hyperglycemia I don't think that is so much of a concern now um, and uh, so I think either is is defensible but intermittent dosing is usually more practical in not tying up a uh, an, an intravenous line continuously over a seven-day period. Uh, fluidrocortisone or no fluidrocortisone? At the moment, not. But I think, as I say, I, th- I think if we look at it dispassionately and try and if we thought we had two trials that showed this drug combination works and all the other trials that have used just hydrocortisone uh, uh, just don't show such a significant effect. If you were a Martian coming down to Earth and seeing those data, you'd probably say, well, why aren't they giving fluticortisone?" I would actually like to see a bigger trial um, examining that issue. Um, because I think uh it it's quite you know i mean my my gut and my understanding of physiology suggest to me that that is not the explanation, but the data are trying to tell me something different, and so i maybe we shouldn't dismiss the data
1: yeah and and last, uh when you look at the the forest plot on your trial on your breakpoint. <clears throat> on norepinephrine, uh, you, you had an a priori breakpoint. I think it was 15 uh, mm-hmm. mics of norepi, and then you look at the the entry requirements uh, for the approaches trial. Again, a similar number. Um, do you use something in that range to make a decision, or do you just use it totally on bedside gestalt?
8: So my my approach i mean in adrenal, we said that the patients had to be on cortico on, on a vasopressor for four hours and continuing on that vasopressor um, through the period of randomization, which was taken from the prowess shop trial um, I, and then the mean, the mean, mean and median time to recruitment after meeting the inclusion criteria was around twelve hours. So I based on that, if between 4 to 12 hours after someone has started treatment and has been on vasopressors and they're, they're clearly not improving, because some people are clearly coming off the vasopressors and, and I wouldn't treat them with corticosteroids if they were clearly um, improving rapidly and going to be off vasopressors soon. If they're not and if the vasopressor dose is increasing, beyond the four-hour mark, then those are the patients who I would treat with corticosteroids. I don't have a particular cut-off dose where I start it. It's more the patient's trajectory. Are they improving? Are they getting worse? Makes sense. Simon, thank you. Um, Okay. I understand you're going to hang
1: around a little bit, but um, we're going to move on now to uh, Jason Fua from Singapore. Uh, who's going uh, uh, yes, um, to talk about the need for clinical sepsis research in lower-middle-income countries? Jason, welcome.
7: Hi, everyone. Yes, I'm going to talk about the need for clinical sepsis research in low- and middle-income countries. And to do that, I'll just ask a uh, handful of questions. And uh, the first question is: um, Do we know enough about the epidemiology of sepsis in LMICs. Um, and I think the clear answer is no. Uh, there was a recent uh, systematic review and better analysis uh, done by an fact group led by Caroline Fleshman. And this looked at incidence rates of hospital-treated sepsis around the world. And unfortunately, the information was only present in Thirteen percent of the worst countries, which clearly um, does not cover most, in fact, almost all of the low-middle-income countries. And then, if we look at um, the Epic Two trial, which uh, has been most published almost ten years ago, this was supposed to be an international study, but what was quite um, Incredible was that parasites in the EPIC-2 trial accounted for only 0.7% of all defined infections, uh, 0% in Africa and 0.6% in Asia. And there was no specific mention of uh, what we would think are the typical uh, pathogens uh, in some of the LMICs, cholera, salmonella, viral infections. And if you look at the data, from the Global Burden of Disease Studies and Marcus Schultz and uh, the ESICM's uh, Global Intensive Care Working Group uh, reviewed this recently. Most uh, LMICs uh, see a lot of pathogens that are beyond what uh, people in the high-income economies would see. Uh, For example, we would usually think of, uh, in high-income economies, Bacteria like Klebsiella, pneumococcal, etc. But uh, in places like Africa, we see lots of malaria, tuberculosis, measles, tetanus, rabies, etc. Uh, In Asia, milioidosis, fungal uh, fungal infections, dengue, etc. And most of the studies today do not actually cover or study these pathogens. And the next. Thing though is that um, increasingly, uh, the good news is that uh, several groups are starting to study sepsis in LMICs. Um, Just for example, uh, there's a nice study published by the Southeast Asian Infectious Disease Clinical Research Network in uh, Lancet Global Health just last year, uh, which looked at uh, three countries in Southeast Asia uh, on the different kinds of pathogens. We see, and I think this was in Indonesia, Vietnam, and Thailand. So, we then asked, okay, we don't know enough about epidemiology of sepsis in LMICs, but do we know enough about its treatment? We know that the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines uh, now recommend a one-hour bundle in which... uh, We are supposed to measure lactate, obtain blood cultures, give antibiotics, give fluids and presses for those who need them within a short space of 60 minutes. But we also know that this is clearly not being done in many countries, um, especially low-income countries. Uh, In our own group uh, in Asia, we studied low-income countries. And... At that time, that was uh, about 10 years ago, we focused on the older version of the sepsis campaign guidelines, which was the six-hour bundle. But we removed the need for uh, centravenous pressure and venous oxygen saturation uh, measurements. And even then, um, only 4.5% of patients in the low-income countries that we studied Treatment that was compliant to the six hour bundle for resuscitation. We also know that uh, it is possible that treatment as recommended by the sepsis campaign guidelines may not be applicable to resource limited settings. We know uh, that uh, the FEAS study uh, in three African countries showed that if you gave more fluids than less fluids children with sepsis, you increased mortality. We also know that in Zambia, and this was a study led by uh, Ben Andrews and Gordon Bernard, uh, if you treated adults aggressively with a resuscitation protocol, uh, again, you increased mortality. And some of the reasons could be that in resource-limited settings, uh, treatments such as mechanical ventilation, which are probably important if one develops uh, worsening ARDS from fluid resuscitation are not available. And so we may be dealing with an issue of guidelines aimed at high-income economy being applied in patients in LMICs and potentially that could be harmful. And so there are guidelines that try to focus on LMICs, Uh, for example, the ESICM group, uh, Martin Dunser, Marcus Schultz, um, have attempted to simplify the guidelines, uh, looking at circulation, ventilation, antimicrobial therapy, diagnosis and source control. But I would also remind everyone that uh, often it's not just about the treatment of sepsis, but good old medicine or good old health and healthcare to begin with, infection control issues, hand hygiene, antibiotic stewardship in LMICs. And then we ask ourselves, um, let's not, not just talk about sepsis. Do we know enough about intensive care in LMICs in the first place? And I always remember this image. Right? This was a photo which was published in a Canadian journal almost two decades ago now. And this was a 16-year-old girl who was admitted to um, a hospital in Phnom Penh in Cambodia. And she presented with rash, neck swelling, cough. She's one of uh, those poor orphans who work in the markets. And no x-rays were done. No HIV test was performed. The clinical diagnosis was that of TB and AIDS, and she was empirically treated with anti-TB drugs, and two weeks after this photo was taken, she deteriorated, no IV fluids were given, she couldn't eat, she couldn't swallow, and she died uh, after four weeks in hospital. So this was 17 years ago, but many places in LMIC still face the same challenges. Yasin Arabi in our group um, looked at ICUs uh, across different parts of Asia, LMIs included. Um, it is very clear that uh, there are many issues that we face uh, beyond just the management of sepsis, even the prevention of nosocomial infections. Only about 59% of the ICUs that we studied in LMIs, and mind you, this ICUs are some of the better ones in Alamisis. We're not talking about the rural ICUs or the rural wards. Only about 59% of them have single rooms. And so, should there be an outbreak of uh, diseases that are contagious, I think many parts of Asia would be in deep trouble. Only about one quarter of the ICUs that we studied could measure lactate is the definition of an uh, LMIC ICU. The ESICM group attempted to categorize these ICUs into four categories. Um, The first would be the high-income kind of ICUs, which have pretty much everything. Category two would be those with moderate restrictions. This would be in higher and middle-income countries. Uh, Maybe they are unable to perform CRRT or some other more complex treatment. The third category would be those with severe restrictions. Uh, These are seen in the lower, middle, and low-income countries. So uh, they would, for example, have basic monitoring but are unable to uh, perform widespread mechanical ventilation. And the fourth category would be those with doubt, uh, former ICO structure like uh, rural uh, rural countries, uh, rural areas ICUs or rural areas wards. The World Federation uh, of Societies of Intensive and Critical Care Medicine did uh, attempt to say that an ICU is based uh, in a defined geographic area of a hospital and an organised system for the provision of care to critically ill patients that provides intensive and specialised medical and nursing care and enhanced capacity for both monitoring and organ support. Uh, but even though this is a World Federation guideline definition, we do know that many places in uh, the LMICs do not have this capability. And So just a few slides on cost effectiveness. We, we talk about sepsis management in presumably usually ICUs, but in LMICs, we have to ask ourselves, uh, is intensive care it in the first place? Is intensive care cost-effective in the first place? We are talking about people who live uh, in squatters, sometimes on the streets, uh, hospitals which often do not have oxygen, IV fluids, antibiotics. So if we cannot even manage good old preventive health and social care, are we ready to talk about intensive care? And then, do we know about research in the first place? Um, I remember, and we have seen striking images uh, of what happens after disasters. And there was a famous typhoon. It was called Typhoon Haiyan. And this was in the Philippines uh, five years ago, which wiped out parts of uh, rural Philippines. And images of uh, parents uh, handbagging, there are children who have been intubated uh, and nursed in areas of the hospitals which are not usually known as intensive care units in high-income economies. Uh, they, these images stick with you and you then start to ask yourself, research, you've got to be kidding! research in these areas when we cannot even uh, provide good old intensive care. And yet we do need to do research and so it's good that and it's great that uh, there are networks around the world that are looking to so helping these areas uh, perform the necessary research so that we understand more about the issues that uh, they face and how treatment and uh, thereafter outcomes can be improved and so you have, for example, uh, Isaric, the the SICM Global Intensive Care Group, um, the Welcome Trust and Oxford Group, and our own group, which is the ACT Group, the Asian Critical Care Clinical Trials Group. And so, um, in summary, I, I think that there are many things that we don't know about, uh, the epidemiology, the, the treatment, the whole concept of intensive care and intensive care research in LMICs. In the first place, I know I've not answered any questions. Uh, that was not the point. The point was to actually ask questions and try to inspire more people to uh, dwell into research in LMIS to help uh, the people and the patients in these difficult parts of the world. So thank you.
1: Thank you very much uh, for that very uh, thought-provoking presentation. As I was sitting here, um, I you know, we we think um, in these uh, lower income countries, uh, just skill sets uh, such as being able to to put a central line in or intubate a patient or even have a ventilator. Um, and we've heard this for twenty years that you know there's still such low hanging fruit for prevention. Uh, you know, why should we be in the intensive care intervention phase at this time? Um, what What do you think, uh, what is the role for bringing uh, lower-income countries up in their capabilities uh, from a tech, technical standpoint for things like intubation, central IV access? Uh, is there any role for that? Oh, uh, definitely.
7: Um, I think it's both technical as well as good old clinical management knowledge. Um, so for both uh, Charles Romensaw and his Basic Group have done amazing work uh, around the world, where they pretty much provide free courses. And they go. And, and the good thing about Charles and the Basic approach is that they go to the countries. Um, sometimes we do accept fellows uh, or staff from different parts uh, to, to our own ICUs. And, and we, uh, many of us do this around different parts of the world. But the problem is that the impact, I think, uh, is limited. And it's not just technical skills. It's also knowledge. Um, we've visited ICUs uh, in different parts of Asia, for example, where, uh, strangely enough, uh, because of donations, the technical equipment is actually relatively advanced so the ventilators are some of the ventilators that we will see in our own uh, high-income countries. But the knowledge of how to uh, apply the ventilators to set the settings uh, is still lacking. And so it's both technical skills as well as clinical knowledge.
1: Yeah. So one last uh, question from the audience. Uh, says, Jason, the issues you raise completely resonate with uh, the African Sepsis Alliance views. The African research collaboration in sepsis led by Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine should answer some of the questions for non-pregnant adults in Africa. Is there a similar collaborative in Asia? Um, so
7: I think there are several collaboratives. I I belong to an, something we call the ACT Group, which is Asian Critical Care and Childs Group. Uh, we started about 10 years ago. And because of the issues that I mentioned, uh, research infrastructure, capability limitations, um, we have not been able to penetrate to all parts of Asia. But uh, we are indeed studying sepsis. In fact, we are working on on a, a, a study on the epidemiology of sepsis, uh, which will start uh, in the earlier part of twenty nineteen and and so we we could we could work together um, my my email is on the screen and uh, you could just email me and we we could see how we could better work together i I think that's a lot of uh, potential for intercontinental work
1: that's great uh Jason well we're gonna close now um uh thanks to everyone that's uh been been part of this and i uh, I think it's time for me to uh, turn it over. Okay, now it's coming up. Okay, so I just wanted to remind everyone uh, to please take a survey. You see the URL address on the screen, www.world-sepsis-day.org survey. Uh, eight to ten minutes max uh, valuable information that we all will learn a lot from and uh, once again, I want to thank uh, our sponsors, especially b d uh, who sponsored uh, this session, uh, but also all the other sponsors of the world sepsis congress and uh, now I'm gonna turn it over to Simon Fenfer. Uh, who is going to close the session uh on behalf of Conrad Reinhardt. Simon.
8: Thank you, Phil. And uh yes, on on behalf of the, the GSA executive, um I would like to bring this second world sepsis uh conference to a close. Um I will be very brief, Um, Phil has thanked the sponsors, but I think it's very important we do that. This has been a free to join Congress for anyone around the world who was interested and clearly that cannot happen without us having the financial resources to to put it on. Um, So again, thank you to our sponsors. Um, I would like to thank all our speakers. We've heard from politicians and policy makers, from uh, leaders of funding agencies, we've heard from clinicians and researchers, and very importantly we've heard from patients and from their carers and families. Um, the people whose lives have been so impacted by sepsis. So all those people, for the work that they put in in preparing for this and for their presentations, uh, we should say thank you. I'd also like to thank those who've chaired sessions. This is uh, a significant time commitment um, and very important. Uh, there is a team behind the scenes as well uh, um led by marvin zick who have produced a very um slick and i hope easy to use clearly some people around the world have some some problems with internet and etc um there's there's nothing we can do we can't improve people's infrastructure but the uh, the organization behind this and making it so accessible and available has been fantastic for those um, of, of you who've missed um, sessions that you would wanted to hear or talks you would have wanted to hear for any reason, including time zones and the fact that we might be working, um, everything will be on our YouTube and Apple podcast channels. A schedule will appear on the Congress website tomorrow and they will be released um, so that everyone can... Um, catch up or revisit something that was of particular interest and certainly that's something that I will be doing. You can have alerts sent to you when each of these are released. We plan to, this is our second congress, uh, the first one being in 2016 and we do plan to have a third uh, congress in 2020. Um, We've had Um, well in excess of 15,000 registrants for this and we expect that many people will download the podcast and the YouTube channel. So there is clearly still a need out there and our goal of bringing this to people who cannot attend for reasons of distance, geography, financial constraints, etc. The traditional uh, medical conference, we do feel that this is an important way to disseminate knowledge around the world and clearly in the next two years we will have new knowledge to talk about. And my final comment is really just to remind people that what we are about is improving um, the prevention, the treatment and the outcome for people who might suffer sepsis. Our ultimate goal, the people who really matter, um, which is is all of us, which is everyone in the world, regardless of where you are and whatever other characteristics you have, you are a potential victim of sepsis. And our goal is to try and disseminate knowledge, expertise, and for us to work as a a global community to improve outcomes. And we've made a Great deal of progress over the last few years, and we would like to play our role in in doing that. So, I'd thank everyone for who's um, been part of this, whether it's as a contributor, an organizer, a sponsor, or a member of the audience. Um, And we look forward to working together to improve patients' outcomes, and to repeating this again in two thousand and twenty. So with that, I'll bring the conference to a close and wish everybody either a good day or a good night, depending on where you are. Thank you.
0: That was the final session of the Second World Sepsis Congress. Thanks for sticking with us over the last few weeks, and thanks for supporting the Global Sepsis Alliance in its global fight against sepsis. The Third World Sepsis Congress is already planned for 2020. In the fall of 2019, we will be back with the World Sepsis Congress Spotlight, shining a spotlight on one particular aspect of sepsis. Once there is something to announce, we will do it on this channel, so feel free to stay subscribed and make sure to check out www.worldsepsisday.org regularly for news and updates around World Sepsis Day, World Sepsis Congress, and sepsis. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you soon.